Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy podcast. Today, we have Ryan Danahy on the show, the new head coach at Mercer University. Artie, very fired up to have you on the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been a wild ride over the last three months, uh, but I'm doing great. We just did a uh, classic steak and hot dogs game today, um, and I did suit up for a little bit of it. Uh, so that was a little fun. Uh, but uh, no, it's uh, it's been great. Um, you know, I've uh, <laughs> you know, I grew up outside of Boston. And if you if I was 14 years old, Jamie, and you told me, hey, 25 years from now, you're going to live in Macon, Georgia. I'm like, no way, no way. But here I am. And I'm so happy to be here. It's awesome. Phenomenal. Well, that's the perfect segue into uh, how I like to kick off these podcasts, which is talk a little bit about where you came from, your lacrosse journey. Now, I remember you at Top 205, this big, athletic, uh, strong, athletic in, in the sense of like good body control and powerful, maybe not the fastest guy, but but a good go-to-the-rack guy for sure with some vision um, from Bill Ricca High School. Bill Ricca Mass. Um, I knew Bill Ricca because of Walt Cataldo. The, the yes. Walt Cataldo was one of the great Bill Ricca uh, and Brown lacrosse players of all time. And Dom, we used to call it Bill Ricker. So that was why I, <laughs> I have to call it Bill Ricker. Um, but but I remember uh, what a beast you were. And then I remember you going to uh, Dartmouth. But why don't you give us a little background on your on, on your journey from uh, Bill Ricca to Dartmouth and then into coaching? Yeah, it's it's been everywhere, and it includes you too, Jamie. Right, um, and so uh, uh, graduated Bellrica High School, um, and you know, Jamie, it's funny you mentioned Walter. Um, there's a great picture, and I have it in my favorites. In fact, I'm actually going to send it to you right now because I want you while I'm talking. I want you to tell me who the person in the photo is. I know you're going to know the one guy because you just talked about him. You're going to tell me who the other guy in that photo is. But uh, my journey was uh, it's 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 been a, a lot of different places, and I've been blessed to be at so many different places. Uh, so graduated Bolrica, went to Dartmouth College, graduated there, did a hot two 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 second trip uh, in the real world trading euro dollar options on the CME uh, in Chicago. I uh, realized that wasn't what I really wanted to do, um, and I always wanted to coach. And in November of 2007, I got a call from Andy Towers saying that Pat Tracy is going to go to UMBC. Man, I need we need a guy. Are you? Uh, I know you're looking for a job. You want to you want to coach? Um, and I said sure. And I feel like, and I say this to everyone, I feel like I was kind of like the last quote easy hire um because i didn't even think anyone else was like applying for the job i had a new when i was four years in college i had a new second assistant like every year you know it was like and i was hired it was 17 grand a year no benefits and you only got paid 10 months of the year so i i didn't realize 
how hard it would be in future years to come. But, um, you know, there it was. Andy Towers starting my coaching career, but a quick phone call because in November, in the middle of fall, they needed a guy. And uh, and so I jumped on board um, and uh, it kind of set everything else off. Uh, I spent six-ish years at Dartmouth. Uh, in 2013, I went off to uh, the University of Michigan, um, and I felt like it was a really good move for me at the time because I'd spent so much time at Dartmouth, 10 years, both as an undergrad and as a coach, where I needed more on my, quote, resume. I've always wanted to be a head coach, and uh, you know you can't necessarily stay at the same place the whole time. Um, and so what a better opportunity than uh, to go to such an incredible institution like Michigan, where you got Big Ten, you've got scholarships and all the resources. I mean, that place prints money um, and, um, and and you have everything, albeit you did have a club program uh, that was starting fresh. So that was a unique challenge. Spent two, there, two years there. And then that's where you come into the picture, Jamie. Uh, of course, you were building uh, 3D lacrosse at the time. Uh, it was growing rapidly and you wanted uh, Division One coaches to make a big impact at 3D. Uh, you convinced me to come on over uh, and I did. I really enjoyed it. an offer you couldn't refuse. I think that is exactly what you did, Jamie. <laughs> it was impressive uh, on all accounts. But I'm going to come back to my experience at 3D, Jamie. You're going to really appreciate it because, thank God, um, I did my 3D lacrosse. And, um, you know, for eight months, uh, you remember that phone call. I think it was like 10 p.m. on like Friday night. And I was in the office and I'm like, hey, Jamie. Uh, I don't know if I could do this. Um, and, you know, the club scene was was awesome. I learned a ton. I learned a ton from you um, and specifically from organizational level to uh, mannerisms to uh, there was just so many things when you deal with younger kids, anywhere from a second grader all the way up to a high school level player. And um, and then just the curriculum aspect. I, I was so impressed with what you were doing, but I didn't have anything of my own per se where I could coach and like, this is my team kind of thing. Um, and so uh, it was difficult for me in that aspect. Um, and so uh, Plus, I you know, think you wanted to be a coach anyway. I, you know, I, I, you don't know what you don't know, Jamie. Right. And, um, it, but you totally understood it. Like, you know, that phone call was, was great. And, uh, you know, you and I, we had, uh, you know, a great relationship from the start. We still do now. Uh, but you know, like anything else, uh, I was thinking to myself and I think you even said it, ah, you know, you've been doing this for 10 years, right? You'll be jumping right back in. No problem. Uh, well, <laughs> that was not the case. Um, and so um, I had to battle back, Jamie. And um, and it was it was a it was a difficult journey. Um, but my and, and I feel like, too, this was a turning point in my life where, again, you don't know what you don't know. But when you don't have what you know you want, which for me was to compete and coach at the division one level. I had that not taken away, right? I stepped away and then I wanted it back and it was it was difficult to get back in. It was disheartening. And so I had to start from square one. Um, and so moving down to Philadelphia, I uh, worked for uh, Mike Murphy for two years as a volunteer, uh, both a video coordinator uh, to volunteer coach. Uh, run on the box. I mean, I was happy to do that anywhere. Uh, but what an experience that was working for Coach Murph, uh, working with uh, Pat Myers and Casey Iketa. Um, and two years after that, you know, I'm still looking for an opportunity, still looking for an opportunity. 
And, uh, you know, obviously Coach Federaco with the move with Joe Connor to Dartmouth, my alma mater, it's kind of weird how it all kind of comes full circle. Uh, there was an opening and uh, I felt so blessed and lucky to get the opportunity to kind of restart my coaching career almost where I left off at Michigan and arguably at a better spot, um, you know, from where I left off, obviously with Michigan only having a program for two or three years. And uh, there I am in the Patriot League. And so I uh, spent four years as a recruiting coordinator and offensive coordinator at Bucknell. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, Coach Fed has got a wild perspective on coaching, schemes, uh, culture. Uh, and, I, and because, and you can see it too, because my even my Dartmouth journey was interesting because we went from playing for Ricky Soul, then playing for Bill Wilson, being coached with or coaching with Bill Wilson as a head coach and an assistant coach, Andy Towers. Then Andy Towers becomes a head coach. Um, then I move on to John Paul. Then I move to Coach Murph or you and then Coach Murph. Um, and now I'm moving to Fed. I had such an eclectic background of human beings and viewpoints on the game um, that honestly, I would, you know, there have been some rough moments but I wouldn't trade it in for anything. Like I don't regret any moment in any path that I've taken to get to where I am now. And of course, this past summer um, on August 9th, I've got the official offer from Mercer University and August 15th, I had my first day in the office. So moving my entire life in six days, um, but it's been wild. The guys here have been incredible in terms of like the transition, being flexible. I don't know this. I don't know this. I'm like, heads up, guys. It might move this way or that way. Uh, but uh, I see a lot of smiles out there every day, including today. And I just, uh, it, it's 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 special. It really is. You know, uh, from being a head coach for so long yourself, how special it is. And it's like, you know, same day that my son was born. Uh, it's when you're first time head coach, it's like blank slate, blank slate, blank slate. Like, where do I go? Where do I go? Uh, but I've been preparing for this for so many years. Right. Um, and so it's just, that's kind of where my journey has gone and so many different unique experiences. But I, I do want to touch on, on my experience in 3D coming back here to Mercer. So I come in my first day, my first day in the office was two days before the guys moved in. And so we had practice the next week. So I didn't have a staff. And so I had a GA, but, you know, Tim didn't really know what I wanted. And then I had a volunteer, uh, Carl, who, thank God, was was here because anywhere from like, hey, how do I print? <laughs> like, I, I don't have an email address. You know what I mean? I don't have a computer. Um, and Carl, thank God. I mean, he, he, he was just he's an angel sent from heaven. And so uh, but we had two practices a, a week. I condensed it. And I basically ran 3D practices because I was coaching both sides of the ball. And so I was like, all right, man, I don't have a staff, but I'm going to go out there. I'm going to inject my energy and I'm going to coach both sides of the ball, big picture stuff. Uh, we're going to go out there. And we're going to compete. We're going to, you know, you know, again, teach them me, show them who I am out there. Um, and so uh, if I didn't have that experience with you, Jamie, um, oh man, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but <laughs> I would have been up Creek, you know? Um, and so uh, I just resorted back to, blue chip uh you know like eighth grade girls in the the car like i went all over the place all over the map leading off you know find one find one find one uh but it was awesome man it was awesome i love it all right i want to go back and um 
and just talk a little bit about the guys you worked for and with. Because, um, and we can't spend all day on that. I want to spend time on Mercer and what you're doing. But but you do have this, as you said, this amazing eclectic group of mentors. Can you just give us a 30 to 45, maybe a minute on each one of these guys, on the things that you learned from them, the things that you love about them, something, anything that coaches, you know, the coaches love to listen to this podcast, but, you know, so do parents and, and, and players, you know, tell us something about these guys. Uh, so I'll start with Ricky um, and he recruited me and talk about a guy who was relentless recruiter. Um, you know, I mean, he called me every single day when I woke up in the morning before school and I felt like he called me every single day before I went to sleep to, 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 to get me. And I'll never forget that experience. Um, and then certainly from him uh, on field, I mean, talk about like passion and energy man i mean there's there's not a lot of people that have that killer instinct like ricky did and it, and it warmed my heart because like that's me you know um and so i learned a lot from ricky in terms of um his just i mean energy is incredible um uh, then you got bill wilson and i learned a lot from bill uh because he was like 27 years old i believe when he started as a head coach uh at dartmouth and you know i learned a lot in terms of you know, what he brought to the table, the different things. I remember one statement that he made to me. He said, there's no cost, like there's no cost to going out and recruit. If you find somebody, you go get them. And it kind of tied into that Ricky soul attitude. And I don't know where he learned that from, but I'll never forget that. Um, then you go to, and, and there are other guys in my coaching uh, whole circle too, that I didn't really mention on the front end that I'm going to mention now. Then you come into Andy Towers, right? And Andy is basically like my dad, my best friend, all into one. Uh, and, and he probably fits that role for a lot of people on planet Earth. Uh, but Andy uh, showed me how to coach and be passionate and reasonable with players in 18 to 22. Um, and he also showed me patience in dealing with administrations. Like, for instance... Uh, you know, the, the, the women's coach at the time, she wanted the afternoon slot and Andy said, good, she'll have the afternoon slot. We'll go in the, in the morning. And I never, in the moment I was like, why, why, why don't we fight for that? And it's like, no, I'm picking my battles. When the time comes, that's when I'll get, and I was like, all right, I got it. You know, Andy's always playing chess, always playing chess. And I love that. Now he also hired your former assistant, current head coach at High Point, John Torpy. And I learned a lot from Torp, from schemes to, you know, watching film to, uh, you know, in, again, a different, same energy. You know, that picture, I think that picture has been circulated uh, with Towers, Torp and myself on the sidelines. We're all pointing angrily, probably yelling at a ref. Um, it's a legendary picture, but, you know, we all had this energy and it was incredible. He showed me how, you know, from an offensive, but just to view the game differently, um, to evaluate perspe uh, prospects on the road, you know, organizing, recruiting. I mean, John, uh, Torb, such an incredible mentor to me and helped me currently as I've kind of navigated my hiring process, you know, just being a, a great person uh, to lean on in all of this. Then I go to Michigan. Hold on, hold on. I got to interrupt you. So that was a pretty yeah. sick basketball staff at Dartmouth you guys had. 
Oh man, did you hear about the 21? We used to play 21 every day. So 21 uh, is quick. Like, you know, you get to 11, you only go back. If you get tipped in, you go back to zero. But if you get over 11, you go back to 11. And and so we changed the rules though, uh, Jamie, because we got, we're fat and lazy, right? So we were just tossing up threes. So we changed the rules where the tip-ins were worth three. The paint was worth two and anything outside the paint was worth one. So like you had to drive and it became a full-fledged one-on-one-on-one bloodbath. And I like, we would be out there for three hours, like three hours just screaming and yelling, like hacking each other. You couldn't finish the game. Um, But, uh, but that was, I mean, I wish we had film on that stuff. It was unbelievable. Uh, But then it was unreal. Um, and then we went to, then I went to Michigan and, and under John Paul, and I'll tell you this, John Paul taught me program management and, and how detail matters on every facet of the game. Now, what effort you put into each detail, that's up to the head coach, of course, but he had everything down to a science uh, from fundraising to, you know, how we organize our meetings with our staff and our, you know, academic advisors and our trainers and and our strength staff and how we bring it all together. Our social media was, you know, he was a manager of a program from budgets to how we're going to travel to, you know, he, he took the pressure off of the coaches, put it on staff in, in obviously in a great way so that we could do our jobs every day. And I was so impressed with John Paul. And details. at the same time, too, I was, what's that? Details. Details. details like, then, like the chicken broth on the sideline of the um, high point game. Yes. Like he, he had it all down. In North Carolina, February. Get the chicken broth going. <laughs> he had it all down to his side. But here's the thing with JP had that no one else in lacrosse had at that time was he had resources. I mean, we had an army of film coordinator, graduate assistant, director of ops. We had an administrative assistant solely for men's across. We had an equipment manager solely for men's across. We had a strength, strength and conditioning coach solely for lacrosse and an academic advisor solely for across. He had all these people for lacrosse and it's very unrealistic for any other program, but, but the details do matter. And if you have all those resources, why not use them? And no so doubt. I learned it from him for well, that. I know you had resources because the Denver shootout back in the day, I had this amazing idea of creating a three on three basketball tournament for coaches on Friday night after they recruit. And you would roll in pretty much just for the basketball tournament. So I <laughs> Budget. The best was when you lost early and you just got in your car and drove back to the airport. <laughs> I was so mad. I didn't want I to think be there. Alks and Fife's and um and it Brundy was... won that one. Uh yeah. So no, Fife's was on my team. Fife's was on my oh, team. That's right, right. It was Poli, me, and Fife's. That was the three. Poli's a D3 basketball shoot. Like oh, yeah. it was just like, dude, get open, get Poli the ball. Uh, except for except for when he became a head coach, he became a much worse player. <laughs> That's right. It's hard, man. It's hard. It's long it's days tough. in this office, man. It's long days. Um, but yeah, J- JP, yeah, we did have all the resources. I was like, I ain't staying for Saturday. I'm out of here. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't look people in the eye uh, if I lost in that three v three. We took it home a couple you would, times. You would have stuck around if you wanted, though. 
I, we won it a couple times. Absolutely, I stuck. So around. it's like there's a Happy Gilmore check for like fifteen hundred bucks or something, right? <laughs> yes. That was the best part. Was that the was Happy Gilmore cool. check that we gave everybody? Oh, uh, awesome. those are good times. All right. Well, you talked a little bit about three D. Let's skip over that and get to um, and get to Murph. Talk to me about yeah. what you uh, what you what you learned from him, and you work with Pat too, right? Yeah, so uh, the two of them, um, and uh, Murph, Murph is uh, incredible to bring me on. Uh, again, I was a video guy, and so my first year, it was really kind of just like, I was kind of like Murph's assistant, you know what I mean? Like, I was the guy with the clipboard, you know, just kind of watching him, and 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 he's, he's, talk about another program manager, and he's also like, I mean, that, that, that guy knows what he wants and he knows what he wants from a program and he demands it both from the players, from his staff and, and his uh, extra, you know, outside staff as well. And that was really impressive. And it's been really impressive to see what he's built at Penn. I mean, mean, it's like, it's, it's just continued to get better. Yeah, it it really has. Um, And so, you know, I, cause I just remember, I don't think when I was at Dartmouth, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we, we just, we beat Penn. Like it was yeah. just, you know, it wasn't, you know, certainly like the Cornells and Princeton's at the time, like we just beat Penn. And, uh, and so, you know, he's built it into this monstrosity and the resources that he's been able to um, take advantage of at Penn. You can see it both from the recruiting perspective, the talent on the field is unbelievable. Um, and of course, from a fundraising perspective as well, in terms of, you know, the facilities and everything else that, he has now, but also building out in the future is pretty special. And then Pat, um, and I have to, I have to talk about like the Myers family. Um, you know, they recruited me to go to Ohio State. I, in fact, I was like, I'm pretty sure I stayed with Pat on my official visit to Ohio State. I was almost a Buckeye, so I've known the Myers forever, and uh, they've always been really, really good to me in my career. Um, and I learned this was the first time working for Pat. And I was in awe. Talk about, I mean, talk about organization. Holy smokes. I mean, there's not a detail that goes unseen by, you know, Pat. And I can only assume the same with Nick. Um, and uh, and it's it's awesome to see. And he and a lot of my current offensive philosophy does come from Pat and his level of organization and how one thing leads to another and the demand in knowing exactly why you're doing this. Why are you doing this? Well, here's the reason why. And everything's planned out. Everything has an outline. Of course, the outline is going to constantly change. But come in January, he he has like four pages of an outline exactly what he wants to accomplish. And it's like, holy smokes. I mean, he knows what the future of where he needs to be. And he knows what sacrifices he's going to make. Um, and he is calculated and he gets the guys flowing. And so uh, I learned a lot from him um, just from an offensive perspective. Um, and then, of course, there's Fed. Um, and going over from Mike Murphy uh, to Frank Federaca and, and Pat obviously worked for for Fed. And so he's like, hey, it's it's going to be a lot different than working at Penn. I mean, you can't find two opposite programs, I think. Um, but thank God I did work for Fed um, because, um, you know, his mindset and the big picture and the culture piece, because the institutions are different and there are uh, more obstacles at other institutions and Fed over the, you know, 27 years he's been as a coach there. And then, you know, certainly 17 years uh, that he's been a head coach has mastered the art of winning games with the least amount of resources. 
And from what he started in the culture of the 10 man ride to his fast sliding defense, because he does everything based on what they provide him from a recruiting standpoint, scholarship standpoint, which is nothing up until recently. Um, and, you know, just a, a resources in terms of facilities. I mean, they're still playing up until this past year, they were still playing on grass in the fall. So literally 30% of the uh, games are, um, our practices are canceled because it's raining, it's snowing or whatever, and you can't ruin the grass because then you can't play the next day either. So it's it's just a mess. But uh, they've improved on their end, of course, and uh, I can only assume that they're going to have much more success at, that they've already had because of the resources they're pumping in. But Fed just has an incredible viewpoint, so different on how he treats the players, how he allows the players to experience, you know, the maximum amount of buck now, uh, but all the time at the same same time being able to get the most out of his talent on the field pretty awesome i want to uh offline one of these days we got to talk about that 10-man ride yeah yeah and, and the way he recovers um yeah. defensively and, and somehow always gets a pull of the ball yeah uh he's uh he's done a great job of it and 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 to be honest too like you know, in the Patriot League, it's like every team has a little niche, but, you know, generally speaking, it's funny how people talk about the 10 man ride, but in reality, like it's not as effective in league because they've been all coaching against each other for so long. Like all those Patriot League teams, with the exception of like two, have been coaching there forever. So they're just like, oh, here we go. This is Bucknell, buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. So uh, it's, it's, you know, and then everyone else, by the way, has taken on the 10 man. So the 10 man is like new for a lot of teams and a lot of teams implemented with fat. It's just been part of the, like, we didn't have another ride. Like literally we didn't have another ride. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that takes us to Mercer. Yes. Um, you know, blank slate, like you said, um, pretty awesome. So, so talk to us a little bit about how you're trying to build the culture. Yeah. So I, I think, there was a few few items that I wanted to check when I was on the interview process here. Um, and one, I wanted to check to make sure that, well, I didn't know about Mercer. I, I knew a lot about the team. We had just played them a year prior. So I knew about the team and I'll get to that in a second, but um, I didn't know much about the school. And in fact, even when I came down here with Bucknell to play them, you know, we stayed in a hotel, we went to the stadium, which is sick. But I didn't really see the rest of campus. You know what I mean? We're in and out. You know that. Yeah. Like we're just, it's, it's just a quick trip. So I, I wanted to see it, but I wanted to know exactly what this place offers its students. Because if you look at my 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 past, I got Dartmouth, Penn, Michigan, Buck. Now, well known schools in the Northeast that everyone knows. You know, has national reputations. And so I'm like, I just don't know anything about Mercer. So coming down here, I wanted to make sure that and. and 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 it was incredible when I'm going through all of these interview processes and I'm, I'm going on campus and I'm talking to these people. First off, Mercer was founded in 1833. It's older than a majority of the Patriot League schools themselves. And for me, you know, its national reputation is well known and and its offering for its students is, is incredible. Plus, it has a postgraduate degree. So I equate Mercer a lot with like BU plus the uh legacy and the reputation of the Bucknells and Lehigh's and Holy Crosses, if that makes sense. If Mercer was up north, it would be a Patriot League school. And I say that just because I spent so much time there that from an academic standpoint, it's alumni resources. And then at the same time, what our guys are able to do 
uh, whether they want to pivot one place or another, or even its alumni connections. I mean, we started the program in uh, 2013, I believe was the first year season. Um, it's, it's just been incredible to see how powerful that network has been, but also at the front. And so, you know, in terms of being able to sell the school itself, I wanted to make sure I was able to tell the kids and the families that this school will take care of you for 65 years down the road. Because that's that's the biggest selling point to begin with. Who cares about lacrosse feet, right? And so uh, I check that box coming down here. And I think that that's really important. And I hear this all the time. It's like everyone who comes down here, every single recruit, the parent at one point or the player at one point will say, man, this is a hidden gem. And I'm like, right. I know. Like, it's not supposed to be hidden. I know. <laughs> right? But, you it's know, like, that's kind of how it works, though, because things are semi-regional and, and, and everyone yeah. kind of knows lacrosse. I mean, when I took the job at Denver, no one knew it. Denver same thing. Same uh, thing. Now, you know, everyone, it's the same kind of thing. It was just like actually an awesome place. And then once you kind of get yourself on the map competitively, everyone's like, yeah, Denver. And it's the same. I mean, like, I remember, you know, people from Texas when I was in college didn't know what Brown was. I was like, all right, well, <laughs> yeah, right. Have big time football. <laughs> but right. the point is, though, is that I've heard the same thing. And it's a great size, too. It's like 8,000 students, right? I mean, it's yeah, like it's a perfect size. And it's got it's got a postgraduate uh, around 10,000 total students, you know, with the postgraduate degrees, too. Uh, it is a perfect size. So it's not too big. It's not too small. And it is growing. Uh, in the last 10 years, they've doubled the size of the athletic department. So the, the current president here was the former interim president at Baylor. Back when Baylor in the early 2000s was the same small Baptist institution. Now we all know Baylor as this big institution out in Texas that pumps out basketball and football. Now Underwood isn't necessarily trying to beat Baylor, but it's trying to grow its reputation through the athletic department. So they yeah. just started a football program here about less than 10 years ago. And so the football program literally sells out their 11,000 seat stadium every single weekend. They've got country rock bands, uh, Corey Smith, Rodney Atkins, Mitchell Tenpenny. They got all these superstars coming in the, uh, for a line of concerts like LXM, you know, line of concerts before the football game. And they all, oh, no way. yeah, it's on LXM tour. Yeah. In football oh, version. Sick. It's so sick. And yeah. so they're really building it through, uh, you know, ath athletics, you know, certainly from a women's men's lacrosse, that's a hundred people. And then you got a hundred person uh, football uh uh, thing it's it's really special what they're doing so and again uh brian garrity the deputy ad here is also big in the fundraising he's like the year i stepped in it was one hundred eighteen thousand dollars was raised in fundraising this year alone is 4.3 million dollars and that's under 10 years that's this that's the growth um but the other part of this is i wanted to know what the administration is doing for the players and the program and then i want to also know can we win here uh, with the current situation, right? Two, if you if you walk around Mercer and Jamie, I got to get you out of here. It's unbelievable. But the guys are 50 feet from anything they need. They're 50 feet from my office, 53 from the training room, 50 feet from the weight room, 50 feet from their practice and game field, which obviously is a stadium. Uh, and they're 50 feet from, um, you know, uh, or their team film room. Literally, it's all right here in this one field house. It's incredible. And I'm looking across the, the street. The longest walk they have is actually from their dorms which are all right there. Every single kid in the dorm and, and their hotel like dorms. It's unbelievable. Um, and so they have everything they need from resources, from training, strength and conditioning, the strength and conditioning program here is insane because we're tapped into the football side, which is incredible. Um, and so it's built and it's already here and the foundation is here. And then the next part is, is can I win here? And obviously from the perspective that I just coached at Bucknell and we just scouted these guys, they're one of the strongest teams up the middle. 
from Ashton Wood uh, at the faceoff X to Colin Kelly at the in the goal to at the time Sean Goldsmith at attack, and then they had this wild card who I didn't realize. I was like, you know, in the office, I was like, I think this kid thirteen to short stick D midi is like really good. Like I think we might have an issue. And then, of course, we call a timeout. I go in an invert, and he throws one of our midfielders into the stands. And I was like, all right, we don't need to we – we're not going to go against this kid. Uh, he's back as well. And so we have one of the strongest guys. We're built to win now. And that's so exciting. It's not like the found, the previous staffs has had to build a great foundation. I hate when people kind of, like, come in as, like, coaches, and they're like, no, I'm going to change the culture, and I'm going to yeah. change – It's all a mess. It's, stupid. it's so stupid. It's like, look, everything is here. And now I'm injecting myself. I'm injecting my energy into this thing. I'm going full force. I'm going to recruit my guys, of course, but I'm not going to replace anyone here because there's enough talent to win now. And as you know, the ace son, it's a brand new league, 10 teams. It's wide open. You know, you got Jacksonville, Robert Morris, Air Force, Utah, us. Then you got Bellarmine, Detroit Mercy, Cleveland State. Then you got the two new uh, programs in Lindenwood and Queens. It's a battle of, you know, Who's, who's going to survive by the end of the year? I mean, that's the reality of it. And so we have enough talent to win. I'm excited about the direction of the program. And that's why I took this job, because once I do my job in exposing this university to the Northeast, you know what, snobby lacrosse players, everyone wants to stay in the Northeast. And as I said, in the front end of this, I, like I, you know, in Billerica, Massachusetts, would I ever thought that I'd live in Macon? No, not even close. But here I am. And I'm telling the same thing to these recruits. And they're like, this place is awesome. And so I'm just, you know, again, I'm excited, you know, uh, you know, it's been a wild ride, like I said, from, you know, starting a new staff and, you know, building those relationships and the guys building those, but these guys have been incredible and they've been starving for like an energetic push. And so that's, that's what I'm here to do. And I'm, and I'm, I'm humbled and, and, and really grateful that I've been put in a position that already has everything they need to win. It's awesome, man. Love it. Um, so you know, you just kind of reference like I'm not going to change all the culture, change all this. But what, what, what? In simple terms, when you come in, what are you, what are you presenting that are the values, you know, for that you want these players to have? And I want to sort of start with that, and then I'd like to have kind of have that conversation and just talk about player development, offense, defense, and then recruiting. Those are the the, the topics I want to kind of get through and just talk about your values and, and what you're trying to do. And, and so that people that are starting programs themselves can kind of learn, like, how do you do it? You know, coming in, coming in from scratch. I mean, some people have the the book in there and that's what they're going to do. And then there's other people that let it flow a little bit more and just kind of be themselves and, and, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, you said the book and over the last three years with coach fed and, and Bucknell, I started doing a coach's journal. And I started writing, like, just even from scheduling, like, you know, parent meeting on the first day, you know, like, I'm just writing everything out and I'm writing everything out. And then, you know, I was preparing to, to be interviewed as head coach. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of like vision and what's my culture, like, what's my, you know, all that stuff. And so I did, I, I created a journal, um, it's like 32 pages, kind of crazy. Um, but 
as you know, like you've been doing, like I've been doing, this will be my 19th season. Cause I did forget by the way, Joe Spolina and my time with the lizards. And I apologize. Cause Joe is, I mean, talk about another chess player out there with like GM and like, you know, savviness and, you know, pre and being able to handle all these personalities in one spot. You know what I mean? Joe Spolina is just a total rock star at it. And so I learned a lot from there too, but I've been doing this for like 19 seasons and the one thing I tell every recruit, and then most of the guys are going to be like, oh, what's he going to say now? After 19 seasons, I know nothing. And my journal, like, kind of went through the, like, just got tossed out the window. You know what I mean? And I, I really have, you know, prepared for this moment. But I do have, you know, a vision for this program. But I do have values. And my number one priority for my players, and I truly mean this because I track it, it, it does have numbers to it, is their mental, emotional, and physical health. And I learned a lot about this at Bucknell too, but you know, there, if there's one thing we all learn from COVID, no matter what your political spe spectrum is, is that mental health for 18 to 22 year olds, or even like 12 to 22 year olds is, is delicate. And uh, they are living a, in a world that you and I, Jamie, never lived in. And, and, and we don't know their perspective. And so mental health is such an important piece to all of this. And so, you know, I talk about it all the time with recruits is, I really want our guys to have a great experience, no matter what your role is on this team. And I want them to compete and I want them to have fun, but I also want them to experience a situation in a locker room where they sit down and they look around that locker room and they're not thinking about a practice in September um, as the reason why they got there. You know what I mean? I want them to look around that locker room and see every single one of their best friends. And the one thing that they don't want to do is disappoint anyone in that locker room. That to me is stronger than any game plan I can have. It's stronger than any uh, strength and conditioning program, any practice plans, any practice period, because as coaches, and I could be wrong, because again, I, I haven't done this head coach thing. But as coaches, I feel like we're trying to just minimize the roller coaster, the downs, right? You're just trying to minimize. Everyone has great schemes. Everyone has the plan going in, but it's a, ro a roller coaster. And if I can close the gap on the downward spirals because they pick up that area because they love each other and they're going to bust their ass to get to that ground ball, or they're going to make that smart play because somewhere in their past, they've you know, that this play has replicated itself. And because they're happy and they're enjoying it, they remember that and they make that play as opposed to being uptight and not sure what to do because they don't want to disappoint coach or, or you know, do the wrong thing. You know, that is, is, is where I'm trying to close the gaps at the program like this. And I feel like if my number one vision and priority is their mental, emotional, and physical health, it, yeah, it's great because if they're happy at school, they're going to do well at school. If they're happy at, at their experience, they're going to do well on the field. It is a little selfish in a sense, but if they're happy, period, we're going to win more games than we're going to lose, right? Because everyone knows that everyone's top, say, 20 guys can compete with any top 20 guys. Anyone can win on any given Saturday. Yeah. I just have to minimize the gaps where we don't perform as well. And the only way I can think about it is if I create an environment where the guys are pumped to be out there to make the right play in the end and they have this free mindset to do the work. And so that's kind I of- I love that vision. too, because so many people are just like, you know, their whole mantra is just embrace the grind. And it's not that we don't <laughs> want hard workers. And you just mentioned it, you got to do the work, but you know- you want to just love what you're doing and yeah. 
it doesn't have to be miserable either. And I, and I feel like even I was guilty of that at times, like, all right, it's going to be a hard <laughs> day. We're going to make, you know, like, you know, we just, we don't need, we don't need to be tough on people. Um, honestly, because yeah. it doesn't make, it doesn't make any difference. Like you can't make somebody tough. They're either tough or they're not tough. Like if your toughest players are are going to be tough, and you could you can grind them to death and make them really tough and really tired. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, but I, mean, I do I kind of disagree with you, Jamie, a little bit. I, not that like tough guys are tough guys, right? But I do think you can carve a path to for not tough guys to be tougher than they are i totally agree with that but 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 you don't do that by beating the shit out of them you do that (laughs) yes usually when 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 someone seems like they're not tough and then you find out they are it was just because they didn't have the confidence to make the play and when they kind of when they can get that confidence at some point um they will they will make the play you know and, and usually everyone we try to just inflict on our athletes to make them tougher. Yeah. People that can withstand the infliction, you know, are like, you're toughest, but they're really not. I mean, the guys who run the run test, win the run test usually like don't even play for you. And so (laughs) sometimes they do. Yeah. But all right. Great thing. On to the next, on to the next topic. Um, You know, as you know, from spending time together with 3d and talked a lot of lacrosse player development is a huge passion of mine. And, and um, it, it, it probably is the, the, the vehicle for anybody to make the most amount of improvements. Because like you said, everyone's got a good scheme. And, and, and at the end of the day, though, and everyone's got good players, but it's so important to develop your players. How are you going about that? How do you think about it? Yeah, I, I, and, and that's actually a great question because I also get that question from recruits. What's your style of play, Right. And, and they're tied together in a sense. And I feel like I, and not to like, I hate like to my own horror, but I feel like I, and I was having a couple of conversations with coaches and they were saying, you know, Hey man, like you did a good job at Bucknell using your guys and maxing your guys out, like for the talent and, 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 and skill sets that they have. And I never really know, noticed that, but I was like, that's kind of always been my, coaching philosophy from an offensive perspective is if I have a right-handed heavy shooter, I need to find ways to get that right-handed heavy shooter shots. Right. And I'm not like, and when people, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, when people talk about player development, I think they often think that, okay, we're going to teach a split dodge and we're going to teach, you know, these skill sets and, you know, everyone's going to have a menu of skill sets and they just pick the ones that they're good at. Right. And, and that's kind of true, but there's another aspect of like knowing your personnel and then knowing your role on the field when it happens. And I feel like for the way that I've kind of designed an offense and over the years, it's become more of, all right, man, like if I had a Dodger, I'm going to, I'm going to dodge him. And because being able to break down a defense at the next level is hard to do. You're going to play big time defensive schemes uh, or defensive teams. It's going to be in the Patriot league between the service academies and everyone else. That's, that's, it's really good defenses. So, and then at the same time too, and I learned this at Bucknell, it's like, if you can't do that, now you got to manipulate it. (laughs) You got to figure out a way to, you know, get the defense to move. And so you kind of creating, new and cool concepts and to your point the player development piece is just creating higher iqs on the field and having them recognize 
the situation both from what their strength is, but also from a conceptual scheme is like, hey, coach told me that this area is going to be open. This is a good time now. Boom, cut. Or this is a good time now to set a seal. This is a good time to come inside out. And so it's not a six-man scheme anymore. And, and, and I know I've heard you say this you know, a lot. It's come down to one, two, and three-man schemes. <laughs> and if you don't got them, throw it to the other side. And it becomes a little bit of an indoorish thing. But you're still teaching higher-level concepts to guys who can play at a higher level constantly all together within the strengths that each individual player has. And so I'll give you a quick example. So hold on, hold on. In, in your player yep. development model though, you're, you're, it sounds like you're just valuing knowing how to play the game from an IQ perspective more so than any particular technique. Yes. And then within the techniques, now we're doing more skill set work with, say, players of Dodgers. All right, now let's go through dodging. And as opposed to wasting time with other guys who aren't Dodgers, now I can teach those guys uh, different skill sets for their respective strengths. Not saying that we're not combining them all together, but I feel like I can make in, in, in like anything else. If you're a great shooter or if you're a good shooter and I've recruited you because you can shoot the shit out of the ball, well, I need to make you a great shooter in order for us to win the games. And so uh, so in terms of time and efficiency, let's focus on you being a great shooter. And so there are times where I'm like hammering on the shooters during shooting drills, specific ones where I'm like dialing in and I'm talking them off to the side and I'm, hey, man, like you need to dial that in. You need to put that low and away or you need to upgrade here, whatever it might be. So you're not going to tell your lefty Canadian that he needs to get a good right-handed on the run shot? <laughs> I say it all the time. Uh, and I don't know if it's politically correct, but I'm like, we're a nationalist type of program. Like, you know, if you're Canadian, keep it in your right hand or keep it in your strong hand. Everyone else, if you're American, you go both ways, both hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> and all the Canucks are like, yay. <laughs> because it's just, it's useless. It's not, I, I'm not interested in putting people in, in, in bad spots. And I, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. And this will, this will make you laugh, uh, Jamie. It was at Bucknell and uh, Fed is well known as slow the ball down i don't want to play defense that's our best defense and when sean and, and will or sean o'brien and will sands and those guys they must have shot their shooting percentage as a team must have been like 0.05 because they would like rocket shots out of bounds just to keep the refs off from the before pre-shot clock right and when i came on board i actually was the only coach i think in division one lacrosse that had shot clock experience because I came from the lizards. That was the year. And so, um, so it was cool. Uh, but as we're going through and it was in 2020, fed son, Matt Federaka started breaking out like real early and our goalie kept hitting him and we kept getting fast breaks and like scrimmages and stuff. And we had this kid, Will York, who was six foot five, six foot six and could hammer his shots. He played for Notre Dame I know. years ago. Yeah. And so <laughs> I remember this. I walked in the office. I sat down with a smile on my face and I said, Fed, do you know what I'm about to talk to you about? And he looks at me, he goes, yes. <laughs> I got, He's like, I got, damn I got, it. I, we got it. We're going to have to do this. I was like, Fed, we're a fucking transition team, man. <laughs> like, I know. And I'm like, hey, and a large piece of this was started by your own son. 
It was your own son who did it. Not me. I didn't push anything. But if we can get Will's, uh, York's hands free, it's a goal. Like in six on six, it's harder to do so. So let's go. He was like, absolutely. Of course, COVID season shut down, but I'll revert it to last year. I got this kid, Connor Davis, uh, who's a freshman from Bullis. And we're like, we just kept it going. And for the first time in my life, I I, I was, you know, uh, Joe Alberici from Army, after our close game, it was 10-9 game, it was an awesome game. Uh, we lost, and uh, after the post-game uh, uh, interviews, he was like, you know, the one thing we wanted to take away was Bucknell's transition. And I thought to myself, when in the history of Bucknell across has it ever been take away Bucknell's But it comes back to, hey, I got this kid, Connor Davis, who's got 43 goals as a freshman. He can shoot it. And then I got another kid, you know, another friend with, but I'm putting players in positions, whether it's big picture schemes or small picture schemes in positions to be the best player they can based on the skill sets that put them in success, positions of success. What um what kind of offense are you guys uh working on these days, RD? Um, you know, I've been a big drive and drift guy. Uh drive and drift, drive and drift. And I think um it's so hard when you just for big picture, simple schemes, drive, drift at X. And the more times you can get the ball through the seam, which is just the terminology I use for, you know, splitting the, splitting the field in half. If you can get the ball through the seam twice, I mean, it is so hard to defend. Um, And so, and if you can get guys that can master the drift concept and, I, How do you I describe the drift concept? Tell me what yeah. you're talking Tell people yeah. what I know what you mean, but uh, what, what do you, how do you describe it? So at the lower levels, and I hear coaches say this all the time, and it's fine that they do, but at the lower levels, they'll say to a guide X, when the guy's dodging at you, cheat to the backside, right? That's, that's a uh, common terminology used from coaches, which is fine because in general, it is kind of what you're doing, but I boil down. I think drifting is one of the hardest skill sets in lacrosse. I think it is the hardest skill set. And when you have a guy that's really hardest good at skill set to execute or to defend uh, both. If you do it really well, it's the hardest to defend because you can manufacture slides if they don't slide. And if they do slide, because you got a guy at X for, for instance, the two best drifter uh, drifters ever and and Maryland really executed at a high level across the board and their entire team last year we saw that um but the two best ever Connor Gill and Ryan Boyle I mean they were incredible and I don't know if they knew what they were doing but for me I boiled down to this and I gotta I go Eric Law and um okay Jackson good one. That's good one. okay I, I didn't watch nearly as much Jackson Morrow but Eric Law they, they, money at and Eric Law was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Law, yeah, that's a great one. I forget, I actually apologize that I didn't mention Eric Law. He was actually <laughs> phenomenal. That's a bad oversight. That was bad. Yeah, that, that is, that's egregious. It's egregious on all <laughs> levels. But I equate, um, if you say cheat to the backside, so I learned this from Brownie, and it's a, re, a ball read progression. So when you have the ball on your stick, your read progression should be ball side, inside, outside. And I thought that was a great, great concept. And so when you receive the ball, you're looking back to the ball side because obviously that's where the ball came from. So you're seeing that. Then you scan across. So you go from ball side inside. So you're checking the inside to the outside. And then at the outside same time, backside. backside, correct. Correct. Yes. Yes. And so I teach our guys that, and this is so hard and we call it a return pass. 
throwing the ball back in the direction that it just came from because the defense shifts over, right? By the, the way, drip- I learned that from Andy Towers in about 2005, reverse it to the follow, and it's like literally been su- – it was such a game changer for me over the years. A lot of people are doing that now, but, man. Big time, big time. And 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 he actually taught me the ball, the, 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 the reprogression in fast breaks. Right. So if you receive the ball, it's ball side inside. So you're always looking across, whereas a lot of guys in the original L break would tell you to look down first, then look at the diagonal. It's like, no, you're skipping over a guy before you the get only thing anyway. I want The only thing I want to say about the reprogression, which I don't disagree with, except for I, I, I don't think you're starting at the beginning because really your scanning needs to happen before you get the ball. OK, so I do teach our guys that. And I say scan to the outside before you actually receive it. So. So, yes, there is, and I put an O on the beginning in parentheses because the ball reprogression is when you have it, right? But you're 100% right, Jamie. There is more to the reprogression before you even have it. And you have to put yourself in a position to do it. So, going back to the drift, and the drift is executed at the level and skill set and athleticism that you as a player are. So, everything is different. This is why it becomes difficult. And at the same time, you can teach a guy, hey, look, there's a guy driving at you right now. And you need to go through your reprogression as you're receiving the ball. So, now you're looking to the backside, which is where the ball or the ball side, which is where the ball came from. You're looking at one rail inside. You're looking at a second rail inside, and then you're looking outside all while, Jamie, dodging hard to the rack. And you've got four to five reads while you're driving to the cup. And that, to me, is if you've got five things that you're doing while you're catching, throwing, and running and chewing gum, is one of the hardest things to do. And if you have a guy that can do a great job of scanning the field, being able to still drive to the rack, but also hit that ball side action, that follow, that return pass, without having to throw it through the net and get it picked off by the goalie, right? Or you're able to drive and see the cuts in the rails. I call them rails. It's like the space between the tangent and the hashes on the football marks. So you're looking at both rails because you can't look at the rail in the middle. You're covered by the cage. And so you're going through that reprogression and driving to the cup. And for us, we put a lot of time and effort into that drift concept because it is a skill set, a concept, and an athletic dodging move all at the same time. And all I right, felt so like just know real quick, define can we just define a drift? Would you define it as being when you're someone's dodging adjacent at you and you basically turn um their adjacent defensive position into a difficult approach by almost starting your dodge without the ball receiving it in stride so that you have a step to on your man yeah nailed it and and sometimes too jamie you're this is where i was talking about manipulation sometimes you're not sliding adjacent but that human tendency of a defender in that position because you've done such a great job he's like right there so they 
they stay there. They, they, their feet are cemented. And so now you can create a rotation, a simple rotation, just by doing exactly what you said. You're dodging before you receive it, but you're doing it in a manner that you can get through your progression all while putting pressure on the defense to go to the rack and still being able to make this simple play to hit the outside look if there's nothing there and or sitting on an island and being able to control the island at that point. It is. And, and, and that's that manipulation. That's that slide progression. Or, you know, if you do have a slide, great. Uh, but bottom line is, is, you know, you got to be able to handle both seams, both planes of the field from X all while being able to put pressure on the defense and you're dodged yourself. And you will do drifts are, are not um, solely at X. You can drift, uh, you know, from top to wing, from wing to X, uh, from wing to top. Um, yeah. Drift you can from X to wing. If someone shows a little bit and you fade up the wing, you, you can get a free shot on the wing if they show a little bit. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's kind of like, it's funny because everyone their whole life has been told clear through, clear through, clear through, clear through. And that's no, no, never for the defense when you, yeah. it's a free double, Jamie, free like double that's what, into coverage. Yeah. And I say that a lot to our guys, like the shallow cut has become like literally the death of an offense. And because it's so hard, unless you're got such skilled players who are super athletic to be able to pop away from a quick double and be able to dump it over, which again, that's skill development. Right. Uh, but it's like, the, the reactive cut through is literally the worst. I see it all the time. It's like, no, man, just drift. Because eventually that defender is going to be put in a position where he's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm really close. It's an easy double. Yeah, problem is, is now you got to catch up to me 15 yards away on the opposite side of the field. Well, it's definitely counterintuitive for a defender because they're trying to help. And, 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 and the problem is their man's moving away from them. So if they stop moving <laughs> with their man, their man's wide open. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you about though is just reprogression. I kind of feel like you're, you're, you know, when you when you're gonna when you're gonna uh, reverse it to the follow, you're not yeah. you're not gonna drift. You you see that happening before it happens. I, I I feel like if you're drifting and you're catching that thing on the move, you may still throw it to that guy, but now it's more of a now it's truly a backside skip pass, and really this, it, you've got the new ball side and the crease and the skip through to the top would be a little bit different. Yeah, I don't disagree with you there, uh, but I do slightly. I do think you can still make it happen, but I tell our guys, and, and this is like these 80-20 rules, right? 80% of the time it's right, 20% of the time there are exceptions to the rule all the time, right? But typically when you're a drive drift offense and you're getting slides from the crease, that's typically when the return pass is going to be open. So if you already know going into a slide package that our defense is coming from the crease or an opponent is coming from the crease – they're either going to do two things. They're going to rotate over the top, right? Or they're going to U-turn, which is common, right? And so for us, it's like, all right, well, let's see how quick. If they're U-turning, hit that return every time. Because now the guy on ball was just on ball again, and it's a short stick, right? Yeah. And if they're late, well, the way we're also operating from an offensive perspective is we're fading the over the top. So it's really hard to rotate. So you almost have to U-turn to your point. But if you're sliding from the crease – Generally speaking, you're looking for that return pass. If you're sliding adjacent or again, showing or whatever, or trying not to slide, that's when you're going to get drift. That's kind of what I mean. I mean, basically, you can see it happening before you get it. You know, you're going to be able to feed it because a slide went, or yes. your drift allows you to create the offense when you can't draw the slide with that MIDI on the wing. I mean, that's basically no doubt. 
So. No doubt. And there are exceptions to the rule, too, because even with, say, an adjacent sliding defense, you can still, if they're late, now you can still get above the opposite side GLE and still hit the return pass. Yeah. Right? So yeah, now you're actually, sure. And By you the way, too. do you do double drifts? Ah, uh, this is really, yes. We do, and double drift, so we go two behind, and you drive underneath. Now, it's like you're inviting the easy adjacent slide action. The problem is, is now you've got a bunch of different options you can do for that second guy drifting. You can drift him up to the wing, and then you can get a nice little rail cut from the guy who was already in the fade spot. I'm, I'm using my terminology here at Mercer, yeah, yeah. but like you can cut him through and down. You can hook him. So, like, you can hook them right back into the rail. I use the rail concept as a lot because if you think about big picture, right, what does the defense want to do? They want to cover the inside, right? And then the defense also wants to play the ball on the perimeter. So what happens is it's like kind of like Moses, you know, parting the Red Sea. So as guys are rotating heavy to the inside and guys are playing to the outside – it creates kind of this weird cutting scene between the hashes and the tangents. And you know what the tangents are, uh, Jamie, where it's like a weird cutting lane that's open a lot. And it's actually defined on football fields for us. And so where guys are sprinting out, sprinting in, and then a guy takes the lane right inside. And so I tell our guys to be patient, be patient, be patient, cut, because you kind of forget it. Or if you're covered, start blocking dudes in the rail, just start taking them out because no one calls off ball picks in this, uh, moving picks in this world. So just fucking block down, excuse me. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, I do love the double drifts because there's so many different things. It's funny if I, I, I'm going to have my guys actually listen to this uh, podcast. Drift that I was I'm not the only person on the world. I don't know if we're talking about the same thing but i was watching some yale film last spring and they drift a lot and and sometimes they get what i was referring to as a double drift was they kind of like dodged across the top and 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 drifted the other midi got a step that created the next drift at x on the wing yeah and that's what that they, like back to back drifts you know yeah so there's there's two so I, I, there's actually three, right? So there's the example that you just gave. Then there's just set down, set hike, double drifting, right? Cause you're still double drifting, whether it's at X or it's up top, but then there's the drift redrift. So like you're drifting, they pick it up, you throw it up. Then you actually dodge again, right, and back. Time, right back in where the dodge came from. And at that point you're getting it through the seam again, two times really quickly. It's impossible to cover it, but it goes against all of like the, one-on-one lacrosse uh, one-on-one don't dodge back into the defense but it's like no actually dodge right back into the defense because he's in mud he's literally cement feet he doesn't know what to do i know so i love that i love i love the uh the the redrift concept uh, and it's kind of like when you just don't clear through for somebody and don't drift at all <laughs> yeah exactly like, basically you see like cornell does that a fair amount Penn does that a fair amount where they like for sam hanley they'll do something where they just sit him there and they dodge into the free double zone. <laughs> Instead of drifting, they just they, they just dodge right into where it's a free double for the guy guarding Sam Hanley, except for the fact that he's throwing it back to Sam Hanley, who's now coming downhill right. like your approach back to him. And it's kind of like right. a variation of it. Um, no, doubt. Yeah, cool no stuff. doubt. Well, we're not going to have time to talk about um, defense, but we have to talk about recruiting. So we'll come back another time. But real quick, who are your coordinators? Uh, so right now I'm, I'm in the last stages of hiring my uh, second uh, assistant who I will be handing the offense to. 
Um, so that will soon be uh, announced um, at, on staff is Carl Roush. Uh, but my defense corner is Brian Kingsbury, who I am holy smokes to be able to get a guy with this kind of um, uh, coaching experience, 15 years as a head coach. Uh, I mean, and the whole, the whole hiring process, you know, I was, I was, I was worried, you know, like it's late in the process and to be able to get a guy like Brian Kingsbury, uh, Maryland alum, uh, knows defense, knows recruiting hustles grinder. Um, and I thought I grinded, he grinds. Um, and he's just got a great perspective on the game. And by the way, total opposite personality of me as well. Uh, he's just cool, calm, and collected guy. Uh, so we balance each other really well. So he's uh, running my defense, and uh, and uh, and so we've uh, we've still got uh, pieces to fill, but uh, they will be uh, closed pretty quick uh, in the coming uh, days. All right. Last chapter of the podcast. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting. We got about five minutes. Sure. So just talk about what you're looking for. So if people are interested, you've you've done a great job of selling Mercer, but what I want you to do is try to tell people what you want, what you're looking for. And I know it, it could be an hour podcast on just that topic, but try to do it maybe position by position on what kind of what you're looking for in that sense, but also big picture kind of what you want um, as far as the kind of player and person you want. Yeah. I'll start big picture. Um, you know, number one, we're in Mercer, we're, we're Mercer university and we're in Macon, Georgia. I want to, I want to control the state of Georgia and recruiting. Uh, there's a, a lot of really good players in this state. Uh, and, you know, there is hope scholarship here. Um, so it's included in academic packages that we can offer and scholarship packages we can offer. But there's just a great opportunity for Georgia players here. And then secondly, um, I want competitors. I want competitors who want to compete, derelict competitors, compete all the time. Because that's essentially what it is. Everyone calls it the grind, but it's really just competing every day. And for me, I, that's all I'm doing. I'm coming out there and I'm competing every day. And so if I have guys that are willing to compete, we're going to get good really quick because all the other intangibles are going to check box if you're a competitor, right? You're going to be kind of emotionally driven, energetic. Um, and, and those things for me are important when I'm looking for a, a recruit. And the last thing is, is I want happy kids. The most successful recruits I've ever had are kids that are happy. You know, I, I mentioned Connor Davis. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if there's a happier kid on planet Earth. <laughs> and look at the success he's had. Like uh, the other kid came doing at uh, at Buck. Now you watch him like on film in practice when he doesn't have the ball. He's do like he's winding up with no ball and stick shooting. And I'm like, I looked one day on the sidelines of practice. I'm like, how many how many goals do you think Cam scored just in between plays right now? Like you know what I mean? In his head, like he's just happy. He wants to be out there. He wants to play all the time. And so for me, like I judge a lot of what I'm looking at. Obviously, from a from a playing perspective, I want to bring you in because you're a good player. But there's a lot of it, like just your well-being, your your mental attitude towards the game, your energy, and then you just want to go out there and compete. Those are the big things I'm looking for because they match me, right? They match me. Um, and then in terms of like individually for guys, like for positions, I mean, look, I mean, face-offs is such a hard position to recruit, but you got to have a sense of competitiveness, right? You've got to have like, you've got to be a junkie on face-offs and you can find the junkies real quick. Um, and so that's what I'm dog. Yeah, you really do. Like, like you should be coming to my office with shorts and like taped knee. Like, like that's what I know like, you're a junkie. <laughs> Um, you know, with, uh, with offensive guys, look, if you're going to be a good shooter, like 
be a great shooter, be a great dodger. Give me one thing that's literally exceptional over anyone else on the field at any given time. If you're a dodger, go out and dodge, like break down defenses and make smart plays, right? You know, everyone's going to make mistakes out there, but you know, in, in terms of competitiveness, I'll see you make that next play on the other end, but like offensively show me a skill set that I'm like, I can coach that. And here's the other thing too, I've come down to, and we were talking about it recently is like, I look at a kid, can I take six of him and win games? I'm going to recruit you. Like, that's kind of like another thing. Like, cause I don't know where we're going to fall at any one given year, depending on position, dependent left-handed attackers, left-handed Dodgers, left-handed finishers, right-handed shooters, right? You got all these different positions with the positions I learned from you. Like all these different things are out there. And so just give me a skill set that is over and above everyone else defensively show me show me athleticism show me uh you know a level of iq that you know if you're a th- like and again I, I learned this at buck now we were kind of boiling it down like you know if if you're a, a four-year starter at a program that's won a lot of games in a traditional hotbed area um and you know you're big six foot five and you know, 210 pounds. You're probably not coming to Buck now. You're probably not coming to Mercer. But if you're if you're that third defensive covering a third attackman, it's like well, you have a level of IQ that's kept you there on that field for the four, three or four years. You know what I mean? Like that's invaluable as we kind of you know figure out what we're looking for. Like IQ is starting to come in to a pretty high level of like. Uh, of our recruiting decisions and you know basketball certainly looking for a recruit like basketball if you played hoop uh anywhere in this country like whether it's even like a, a rec hoop junkie like i'm i'm you you've moved up in my recruiting world uh, but i understand that, that those opportunities are few and far between so for me um you know asking high school coaches and club coaches like how how much of his iq but at the same time, too, there are kids with, you know, not the highest IQ, but they have intangibles that you can't like athleticisms, uh, tangibles that you can't coach, um, that you just got to slowly develop their IQ at a rate that allows them to be successful, still doing the things, the things that they're really good at. Um, so, the, uh, you know, you're recruiting two way middies or uh, you're going to try to play two ways. You're going to be offensive. Yeah. Defense. How do you see yourself doing that? Yeah, we're still figuring that out. And again, it comes back to just our offensive philosophy, but it comes down to our team philosophy is what are we built for, right? Um, and what are we built for? And what? How much time do we have? I came in two months behind, right? <clears throat> so coming from Bucknell, every coach has asked me, you got to 10 man? You got to 10 man? You got to 10 man? I'm like, I don't know, man. First off, it's like competitive advantage if you know if I'm going to do it or not. But, you know, um, but we're constantly faced with those those discussions. And so for me, you know, if we bring in a guy and all of a sudden he develops himself into a two, excuse me, two-way guy, that's exactly what we're going to use him for, right? And so, again, like, I'll keep a guy on the offensive end if he's going to put pressure on the defense, no doubt. Or if he's going to keep – what's but, that? It has to depend – it depends on, on what you recruit. So the point is, I, I bet you'll recruit a two-way guy if you could. And if you got a D-Mitty who's sick, but he's actually pretty good at offense, even better. Yeah. And and what's the worst case scenario? He plays defensive midfield for us for four years. Great. <laughs> no problem. No problem. But yeah, there's Goalies. there's all kinds of questions we ask. Goalies. Oof. You know, I I think one of the things that um I look in at goalies is head to the ball. Like, are you seeing the ball or are you just guessing? You see a lot of floppers and reactive goalies. And that's okay if you're a reactor or flopper or whatever it is, but is your head getting to the ball? Like you can see it on films a lot. Like even the big saves, like 
or the easy ones, like they're not seeing the ball. Like he's just putting his stick where the head of the offensive player is stick and his head's still straight ahead. Like his face is still straight ahead. He's not looking at it, but you see the guys who are like tracking the ball all the way in and have to make them right. Even when they don't save it, they still see it. Like they're getting there. Like I've learned that that's there. And then two, like, and this is becoming more of a trend, I think maybe, but the less of a stance you have, the more I want to recruit you from a goalie's perspective. Like look at the best goalies on planet earth right now. I mean, Blaze Reardon just sits there in cage. He's like, all right, dude, shoot it. I'm just going to wait for you to release the ball because he sees the ball so well. You got, uh, what's the, the big, uh, Dylan Ward. Like, he's just standing there. Drew Adams. Like, I, I I remember in the Lizards and I was warming him up one day and I was like, are you, are you, is that your stance? He's like, yeah, I don't have one. I was like, oh, okay. I, like, I was just like, I thought we were playing catch. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly what he's doing is he's playing catch with all the shooters. Um, and you see these kids with giant s- stances and you start to see knee buckles, hitches, arms and hands down. They're just like freaking out inside. Also cramping. They're just like, yeah, right, right. No, exactly. It's like totally locked in, man. I've been thinking a lot about this because I work with a few goalies too. And I watch Blaze film all the time. And it's like, oh, he's unbelievable. He is. He's really unbelievable. But, but, I, but the, the whole idea though of seeing the ball is great. But at what range do you actually see it? You're not going to see it at nine yards or eight yards. You're not seeing it at that point. You're not going to see it if they don't want you to see it. Like you actually at that point. So at at, at 10 or 11 or 12 or 13, depending on the shooter and the the angle and the pressure and all that kind of stuff, it's a little bit different, but, but, um, but that is an interesting part of it because the the truth is the whole idea of hands first and catching it and all that stuff's great when you can see it. And some people are going to be better at seeing it than others for sure. However, there's times when you're not going to see it because they're shooting up or down the hashes from like seven and a half yards and there's, you're not going to see it. So and, how do you, but here, how do you judge I, that is my question. Yeah. Two things. One, if your defense is giving up seven yard shots, there's really nothing you could do. Right. Well, <laughs> on a 45 degree angle, like on low angle. Yeah. You know, then you got to be big. So again, like that, that's another thing I, I do. Like we have, you know, it's weird because like you say, Oh, I want big goalies. But our starter goalie right now is like you know, a small kid and he sees the ball real well. And he, he you know what I mean? He, he makes a ton of saves, right? So it, it's always you want one thing, you got another, and he's great. So for us, for or for me, or for our program, I feel like, you know, yeah, the 10 or 12, like those really for me aren't saves. Like, or if you boil down the game, right? You have to make the saves that you're supposed to make. Right. And then hopefully steal a couple that you're not. That for me is like what 55 to 56 percent. I'll buy that now. I'll buy that today. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're locking in 50, just like I would lock in honestly, uh, 45 percent of the face off X or even 40 at certain points. You know what I mean? I'll buy that in now because then it takes those two positions out of the equation, right? If you're going to lock in 40 plus percent at the face off X, awesome. If you're going to lock in 55 plus on the, and the goal, great. Now it comes down to offense defense. So I just always look at it. I'm like, look, yeah, you're right. It's tough. It, it, and that's where the reactive skills come into play or just playing great angles at 45 degree angle shots at seven yards. And it's like, wow, the kick, all these kids keep missing shots on this kid. And it's probably because he's got a great angle. He's not a lot of shot uh, cages to shoot at. And so again, like he's seeing the ball, but he's putting himself in a position where if he can't see it, uh, you're going to miss the cage or you're going to hit me or, you know, you're, you, you just have really electrical fast hands. 
I think one of the coolest things you said is I, I like you better if you don't have a stance. Because <laughs> I think what ends up happening is, is that what every coach says is all I care about is if you save the ball. Yeah. That's yeah. I, all I care about is that you save the ball. If you say, yeah. oh, I, I like it. And in the end, that is what you care about, except for when you're recruiting, yeah. then you're like, well, I don't like the way this guy plays because it doesn't look right. He doesn't have a stance or, he, you know, or his stance isn't good enough, or he doesn't have great mechanics, whatever that means. And I just right. think it's really interesting that you basically were like, I don't, the, the guys that have been overcoached are the ones that, you know, basically have this stance that locks them into this incredibly uncomfortable position that you probably can't move that quickly from anyway. No, no. And, and you're, and you're, um, yeah. I mean, it's like you're overcoaching and you just, yeah. what is the reality? Like, okay. So if you think about it from a big picture perspective, like you and I are playing catch. Well, if I want to try to not have you catch the ball, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's really what it is. So, I, like, okay, I'll be in an athletic position, but I'm just going to wait. Like they're so tense and they're like, you're muscle cramping. You said it already. It's like, you're, you're, I don't, and, and they're overcoached. You're right. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's I don't like know. I, I don't have any... It's like Bart Sullivan said, you know, it's like, they're, it's like t getting people to learn how to ride a bike better by doing one legged pedaling drills. <laughs> hey, RD. Uh, we got to wrap it up. That was a blast. Uh, always yeah. catching up with you. And now that we've kind of got the uh, formal interview over with, we're going to have to follow up soon and talk some lacrosse. I got some cool stuff to talk to you about. Yeah, man. I would love to anytime you want, man. And I really appreciate having me on. Uh, this is awesome. I really appreciate it. When's this going to come out? Uh, soon, man. Next week. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, hey, who else? Got I'll be in touch. Have a great weekend. Good luck in recruiting in November and I'll be in touch soon. You're the man. Later. Take care.